Hello SFIA audio listeners, in this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, we'll take a look at what sorts of alien behemoths might be possible under known science. To hear it and every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash and use my code IsaacArthur. Good afternoon everyone and welcome to our live stream Q&A for December 26, 2021. This will be our last Q&A for the year, though we still have one more episode coming up in a few more days to close us out on Thursday the 30th. Uh, probably the big news we start off today, which will be getting to on off the questions I'm sure, will be the James Webb Space Telescope, which we on Audio did launch successfully yesterday morning, and so it's also National Bacon Day today and I hope everybody had a good holiday season. And we'll be taking your questions as you get them into the moderators for them to get passed on to my wife, Sarah, who will be helping us by asking the questions as usual. <laughs> as a side note, both Sarah and I are getting over our other fun blessing of the holiday season, which is colds. So we probably are going to be talking a little bit of quieter voice. There may be some background noise from bumping the mic ups as a result. So uh, with that said, let's go ahead and take the first question. Yes, well actually the first question came in on December 8th from my seatmate, Representative Bob Young, and he wanted to know that if, if Santa Claus was stationed on Mars, how would zero gravity affect the reindeer's ability to fly, and would the presence be able to stay in the sleigh? Well there's not actually zero gravity on, on Mars, there's very little air, but the gravity is just weaker by about, uh, what's well, about 60% lower, it's about, you weigh 4 pounds for every 10, or four kilos for every uh, 10 on Mars, so you still have that gravity going on. <clears throat> the air is really thin though, so you have problems getting lift underneath the wings. There's not going to be very much lift. Um, the thing is that fundamentally we are pretty solid based on known physics that Santa's sleigh does not in any way operate under known aerodynamics just because it'd be very difficult for there to be you know, any real airflow going out of those wings that would cause the whole thing to ignite at the speeds he has to travel at, so he's probably using some other type of proportion. Now, you will hear rumors that, that in fact, Santa was shot down sometime in the 1970s during a Cold War exercise where the Air Force mistook him for a Soviet interceptor coming in or a bomb. This is probably not true, though. It's just thought that Rudolph's nose, which glows red as the leading edge of that aircraft or spacecraft, might have been able to trigger them to thinking that was an ICBM coming out of the North Pole. How, so the rumors that he was shot down though seem to be erroneous. And again, that's because that whole concept, that whole argument, is based off the idea that the uh, sleigh is actually flying in our atmosphere for the main part of its journey, rather than just kind of jumping in and out suborbitally. So <laughs> it sounds to me like if Mars is uh, that Mars might be the great weight loss <clears throat> program for January. Uh, it can, and again, this is probably a good reminder that fundamentally when it comes to eating cookies and other sorts of uh, fuels that it's not so much about how much you weigh, it's about what the proportions on that are. So, <laughs> you know. so if you're 300 pounds of raw muscle, you don't really do go on a weight loss program. Oh dear. Well, let's jump right in. We've got some questions from today. Here we have a question from John Dahlberg. Hi Isaac, I love your episodes on the future of farming and vertical farming. <laughs> When it comes to consumption, do you foresee any major dietary shifts occurring in the developed world by the year 2100? Um, you know, usually the thought on this is that as the population rises and we need to be more efficient with our resources and things like that, that we end up cutting back on certain foods and usually the big targets are meat and uh, particularly beef, but I, I really don't think that's going to actually be what's happy on that because 
while I do think we're going to have to find more efficient ways to create these food items, which might be like vat growing the stuff, um, I don't see people really wanting to tailor their consumption to that. Um, we've gotten way more efficient at producing food, and that's why there were so many of the Malthusian predictions from the late 1800s and the, uh, well, the first half of the 20th century really didn't go where people were thinking because we thought the population was going to be like, you know, 2 billion. Um, in Asmo's famous Caves of Steel, which is kind of the prelude to Tranto on the foundation, they have a entirely closed-in population that grows all the food in vats, and they still can support 8 billion people, or 40 billion on Trantor. And that's just because that's the numbers he had then, for the kind of farming they did then. It was kind of aim for a realistic number of what your maximum would be. We have found that that is not true. And at the end of the day, if you're trying to make protein, you know, there's many ways to do that naturally, or through an animal, or through a lab, etc. And I think that we would not see people change their consumption of something like beef so much as maybe just change how that's being created to some degree, too. Uh, and there's a lot of options available. We looked at those in synthetic meats. Um, on the other hand, people are going to move to their tastes, too. Uh, I would hope everyone moves to a healthier diet overall, you know, while getting ready to go on all, all post-holidays diets, you know. And, uh, but I love cookies. <laughs> cookies should be in plentiful supply. <laughs> Sugar's easy to grow, but, you know, um, it, it's just one of those things where consumption can shift to meet what you got you know, in terms of a scarcity limitation. But a lot of times what we see instead is that, you know, innovation causes production to rise to what people want instead. And I, I would expect, or at least hope, that's kind of what we could be able to do. Obviously, in the end, you have to follow necessity too, though. All right. Dragon King says, if civilizations are area in the universe, what is the max number of civilizations there can be before it becomes problematic, where we would have to encounter them? 100, 200, 1,000? Could you say the full side of that question again? If civilizations are area in the universe, what is the maximum number of civilizations there can be before it becomes problematic where we would have encountered them? Mm, um, I mean, kind of realistically, they are, if they were inside, uh, I, I usually say about 500 million light years, if there are civilizations close to them that, it's asking to hard to explain why they aren't, if they're not just a freak anomaly statistically why you wouldn't have, say, you got one civilization that started 501 million years ago, uh, you know, 500 million light years from us, well, we should be detecting our signals by now, just barely. Well, they have 499, you know, that we wouldn't have yet. Uh, on the other hand, in that value out to a billion light years, there should be twice as much diameter there, so two cubed, or eight times more of those civilizations. And it starts getting kind of unrealistic that you want to detect one there, you know, they had to start earlier, right? And just 500 million light years is usually my maximum packing for us not to be able to say the Fermi paradox is just really unlucky or some other variable that would prevent us from seeing them. If you're going for the rarity angle and they, they believe that the kind of ultimate fate is that Kardashev 2 or 3 scale civilizations, then that's about your maximum density. That said, um, that really is not that big of a volume compared to the actual observable universe which we would estimate to be about 200 times wider than that, and then 200 cubed, or, um, oh my, uh, 80,000 times bigger. Uh, wait, sorry. 8 million times bigger, so a very tiny percentage. 8 million civilizations. I'd say if you have less than 8 million civilizations in the universe, you're probably not too much of a Fermi paradox angle issue. If you have more than that, you have a problem. Sounds like you're good to go, Dragon Someone King. should probably check my math on that, though. You got a, a cold fog in your, your brain at the Oh, moment. yeah. Well, 200 <laughs> cubed. That should be 8 million, I hope. All right. 
Uh, Bernie Sanders, hi Isaac. Do you think that gravitational lensing could be used in any meaningful way to see objects that we wouldn't otherwise have the capabilities to see? Oh, sure. Uh, I mean, we've already been using gravitational lensing as, well, partially for truthfully in dark matter uh, because it causes that gravitational lensing. Um, and uh, the nice thing about that is it does certainly cause a roughly spherical blob, which makes for a fairly decent lens. Um, but in terms of gravitational lensing, let us see things we couldn't see. It's what lets us see behind things. Um, we have, well, there's an area called uh, the zone of avoidance, right? And beyond that is dark flow, the, uh, the other thing called dark besides dark matter and dark energy. And it's what mysteriously causes a certain kind of pull in galaxies towards that direction, uh, which is probably not that mysterious. It's probably just a relatively large number of galaxies there, but we can't see it because it's in the zone of avoidance. Of course, that shorthand is actually the second zone of avoidance. The second zone of avoidance, sounds mysterious, is actually just the center of the galaxy, our galaxy. It takes up about 20% of our field of view and we avoid it with telescopes because it's hard to see. The first zone of avoidance is the ground. Do not point your telescope at the ground if you want to be able to see the stars. And so that's the other zone of avoidance. And again, that's just astronomy speak for where you don't point your telescope, but it sounds like some place where if you go there, you're going to be like dodging dragons or, or strange, you know, bad effects. <laughs> the third zone of avoidance is the Plymouth Landing Strip. <laughs> yeah. We have a... Let's see, that's a potentially interesting story. So when I was 17, I got in my first car accident while I was pulling off the freeway here, um, literally out back of my current house, but I didn't live there at the time, where it was very dark and I couldn't see the exit ramp going from about 11 to about 90, or rather 90 to 11. And I banged, I, I turned too soon, banged my car off a, um, a guardrail and put out a headlight. And uh, that was my first car accident, no injuries, nothing like that. Uh, and I always said they should put more lights in on that, and they eventually did. But I really wasn't thinking about that. And when Sarah and I came and got a court in house, I was like, oh, I love this place. And well, we always came to it in the daytime. And uh, one of Sarah's friends, who's a trustee in the area, says, oh, is that house right inside the Plymouth Landing Strip? And he said, well, the what? The airport? Because it's a little local airport. It's like a few miles that way, right? Not, <laughs> not by the house. He says, oh, it's just a local joke for all the lights by the freeway exchange. You're like, what do you mean? So you're out there, and it's like, oh, okay. One of the things I loved about the idea of moving more out to the country was I could do some home astronomy. And what I like instead is that even in the middle of a, a dark, starless night, I can see my entire backyard clearly out enough to do gardening. Through There's pouring a rain. huge number of lights got put up <laughs> after my accident. A bunch of other people got in accidents because it was a regular accident location for years. It's so very bright. Totally unrelated to any other topic other than the fact that... Uh, it's the yeah, third zone of avoidance. Third zone of avoidance. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We have a question from Scooter. Uh, do you have any favorite YouTube channels that cover subjects different from your channel? Hmm, that's a good question. Uh, I guess it kind of depends on what you mean by like, different. Um, I mean... Um, well, you know, different, the not the general, same. Yeah. For <laughs> sciences in general, like, I mean, there's a whole bunch of shows. If, if, if I collaborate with them, that usually means I like their show, and uh, it's one I actually watch occasionally. Um, you know, like, I... I I like to watch Cody's Lab or beekeeping stuff, for instance. So a lot of the other channels that are science, you do other things outside that. I uh, think GCN's the one I like to, to bicycle along to. Um, and there's a lot of ones I watch for, like, general finance information. That could be anyone from, like, a Dave Ramsey to a Robert... I can never pronounce his last name. Chickaquock. Very famous writing book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Uh, then uh, there's other Kiyosaki. ones I just watched for. Hmm? Kiyosaki. Yeah. Kiyosaki. Okay, that's it. And, and then, like... Uh, I like to watch Gordon Ramsay, different Ramsay. I like to watch him cook and yell at people. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I actually enjoy watching him actually just doing cooking shows by itself, though, where he actually explains you how to make something. 
Um, there's a lot of channels I actually watch. I'm scratchy. Uh, let's see. Uh, Wolf Lord Vo and some of the other ones do like 40k things. I'm very into 40k lore stuff, so Warhammer 40k stuff. So uh, yeah, those will be some other ones, examples. I, I watch very little actual science videos online. I think mean, that's what I do. So it's not really what I go for entertainment purposes. Alaskan Ballistics, thank you for your super mm -hmm. chat. And he says, do you think that sensors that detect life forms on planets like in Star Trek are viable under known science? Um, kind of, sort of. If you see our episode from way back, High Tech Search and Rescue, uh, which I, I was mentioning the upcoming videos a little bit because it was a joke on whether or not, there, there was a deal I got made by someone was, could I find an excuse to use a nuclear bomb uh, as part of a search and rescue effort? And, and and it turned out the answer was yes. <laughs> and in that episode, we came up with multiple ways of doing that. Um, one of those would be you do a microwave pulse, and uh, you use that as basically a microwave radar. It's the same as what we use right now for ground-penetrating radar to detect heartbeats underneath, um, you know, collapsed ruins. And it's all about staging up the power on that, because it's not detecting people's life force energy. What it is is detecting the fact that their heart is beating. And it's a very tiny shift that's about in the zone of, of what those microwave wavelengths are at. So it's taking a photograph and it's taking, you know, small photographs a fraction of a second later, etc., and it's seeing if something heart-sized is actually moving. And you say, well, that works pretty well. It can work to go right through 30 meters of stone. In fact, it can work a lot more than that. You could do it through a mile of stone. You could do it through a lot more. And you could do it with a nuclear bomb set off in orbit of an entire planet. Uh, it's, you know, tailoring the microwaves range to be able to try to find someone alive anywhere on that planet. But there's a lot of ways you can do life force detection on, on um, humans. It's just, no, the way they do it in Star Trek is a little hokey. You know, same for spaceships, it's a little bit hokey, but microwaves work, you know, where AO doesn't. All right, Phantom wants to know if you plan to do any videos on communications and the future of communications. I guess it kind of depends on what you mean by communications there. Like, we, we do talk about that for things like Alien Beacons. We've done that episode and how we actually go about doing some of our SETI episodes. We uh, we probably should actually do some more on SETI and the Drake Equation. But uh, uh, in terms of communications for, like, how humans communicate, or while well, we have the Slap the episode coming up next month, that's probably a good example of how we, where we discuss how communication might shift a little bit. The context there being, while we're obviously talking about the classic trope of telepathy, a lot of that episode is on the idea of what's called technological telepathy, which is where you basically build um, MMI units into people's heads so they can chat back and forth without having to open their mouths. It's not necessarily all that complicated. It could just be something like a sub-vocal recorder that sees how you would be vibrating your vocal cords. I suppose that could have been helpful while we were suffering from laryngitis. Uh, yeah, no. <laughs> Very much so. Um, <laughs> if I haven't already mentioned, Sarah and I both have a cold today. Seelash, <laughs> how do you think a manned mission to Mars, how likely do you think a manned mission to Mars within this decade is? Um, I, I would say I consider it twice as likely if this decade is 2022 to 2032 as opposed to the rest of the 2020s. Um, the extra couple of years might make a big difference. I think it's going to depend a lot on whether or not the current... We have a lot of energy that's gotten the last few years, maybe the last five or six years, uh, of SpaceX is really doing these commercial launches successfully and other people getting in that market. Um, you know, I think if the James Webb telescope had blown up on the pad yesterday, if it fails to deploy, those are kind of more, you know, in six months when it's ready to go, do we get images back or it's turned out the scope screwed up. Um, those are kind of little moral blows, like Challenger kind of was, that can really set you back. Um, there are other ones that are little successes that can really push you forward. 
And the question is how much, you know, uh, heart do people have for going into that? And I would say that we actually could get a manned mission in the next 10 years. Do I think it very likely uh, in the 2020s? I would say less likely than not, but I wouldn't say that it was super improbable either. Okay. A question here from Tuman. Isaac, what is your take on the warp bubble discovered by DARPA? Could it be used to surpass the speed of causality? No. Uh, nothing about warp bubbles actually involves violating causality at all. That's the reason why they're, they're hypothetically allowed. The notion of all the warp drives, and I have to say, never assume that DARPA looking into something has anything at all to do with, uh, with whether or not it's particularly realistic. Uh, we'll back on that in a second. Um, but the warp bubble concept works mathematically by using negative matter to, or negative energy, either one, to contract, sorry, to expand space behind you, while in front of you, you're contracting space. So you're shortening the space in front of you and pushing it out wider behind you, and this causes your ship to move along. That, by definition, cannot violate causality or the speed of light limitation any more than, than galaxies spanning faster than light do. Right? Um, and again, it's never about all two objects moving away from each other faster than the speed of light. That's not what the limitation is. It's can I send information back and forth between those two points faster than light? And world drives don't allow that. Um, but do they allow you to get from point A to point B and back uh, in less time than the number of light years? Yes, they would. Do I think it's likely to work? No. Do I think that DARPA is, is researching that indicates that it's very likely? No. Um, lots of DARPA does a lot of initiatives, right? DARPA is about looking at those strange scenarios that might be a bit crazy. I've been part of DARPA work booths before. Um, I've found them to be fascinating, but they're usually just, you know, here's some crazy scenario in some cases. Might be realistic or not, but here is this thing that we've brought up that we're not sure how we react to. Or what would the impact of this be if it was? What do we need to find out if this is going to be crazy? And they are a little bit more realistic than, like, what if a mountain woke up tomorrow, stood up and said, ah! I've been sleeping for a million years, this planet is mine. Right? They are usually in the realm of something scientific that's come up and people are seriously discussing, but don't assume that DARPA funding research or something in any way means that it's considered likely, you know, or that they have a prototype. That's a good point. Uh, Robert Thompson says, Happy holidays to our hosts and viewers. I was wondering, since water is so abundant in the universe, is it possible for a large amount of water to coalesce into a planet without a core of rock or metal? Yes, we actually have an entire episode on that topic coming up. And uh, let me pull the date up on that real quick. Oh, I, I it's think it's showing on the oh, screen. Oh, that's just on, on your screen. No way, it's not what they're seeing. Um, so we have a bunch of screens up inside the the uh, office here that you guys can't see. Obviously, <laughs> I'm just gonna pull that up real quick. So the I, schedule I say that looking ahead. Uh, oceans and space, space habitats and preserves, uh, is the February 24th episode. And Super Earths, February 17th, both kind of look at that idea of complete water worlds, uh, including artificial ones. Now, that said, you wouldn't be very likely to have a world completely made of water self-collapse. Uh, and then once it gets to a certain size, it will actually start to cause those water molecules to turn into things like Ice 7, for instance, which is not really what people are thinking of for that kind of context. But you get some very large water worlds. And again, we'll look at that in February. So. Sounds fun. You'll have to stay tuned, Robert. All right. Valdarg says, What if Venus and Mars manage to produce a civilization capable of escaping the planet's fate? Would there be any reason to return from wherever they escaped to? What if Venus and Mars had produced... Uh, kind of Managed to produce a civilization capable of escaping the planet's fate? 
Huh. Um, I'm not really sure if that question is asking what if we set up colonies there and they escaped Earth's fate, or if you mean whatever made those two planets, like Mars is an airless rock and Venus is a suburb of hell. Um, <laughs> there was often the thought they may have previously been uh, livable planets. And that's actually quite reasonably plausible based on what we know, but I wouldn't say it's very likely either, but it's plausible. Um, I don't think that either one of those planets would offer us any sort of safety from Earth other than the eggs in a basket notion, because, and this is the fundamental bit, um, anything you have technologically speaking that allows you to terraform either Mars or Venus to be livable, economically speaking, allow you to easily fix Earth from anything we would possibly do to it realistically other than blow it up in its entirety with something like, uh, you know, dumping it down a black hole or setting off a supernova inside it. That's a good segue into Rafflecopter Kerman's question. He says, do you think that existing metropolises will expand to megacities with archaeology, or do you think that near-future material science will force us to build new ones from scratch? Um, do I think metropolises will change archaeologies? Al- to say archaeologies? Yeah, will expand to megacities with archaeology. Okay. Um, I don't know on that one. When we did the uh, Eucomonopolis episode, one of the things I pointed out there was that you do not actually need to have um, an entirely like skyscraper planet to have a trillion people living on it. Um, then in fact, you could basically just have it as set up now as nothing but suburbs and with a little bit of additional hydroponics underneath it and that would do the trick. Uh, or you could do the skyscraper cities that were just like the Atlantic seaboard alone, and uh, you know with those archaeologies there, and fit a trillion people in just there. There's the notion that metropolises would eventually kind of merge together in the way called megalopolises, um, and that we kind of already have one of those with like the eastern seaboard, or you know some of the areas like the uh, the Ruhr Valley in Germany, um, and a few other places. Uh, obviously, you know the eastern edge of Asia. Um, do I think that that's the trend that's going to continue? I actually do not. Cities aren't going anywhere, but I'd actually guess that they're going to have a bit of a decline period in the West for a little while right now, just because of the uh, the current health crisis. And that's caused, you know, as you say, uh, there are always silver linings. And one of those is that people are starting to really move forward with things like Zoom and work from home that have existed before now and have been talked about nonstop for a couple of decades, but are really coming into play now that we kind of had no choice but to adapt to them. And that being the case, I think a lot of folks might prefer to, you know, not move to cities who otherwise war for opportunity. So we might see a bit of a temporary halt in the growth of cities. Uh, but something like that might only be temporary. It all depends, is the population going to keep rising or not? And my usual assumption is you always rise, you know, slowly to a comfortable level. Uh, while you can support a comfortable expansion, you'll do that. Uh, but um, if that turns out to be wrong, or if, you know, we get down there further down the road, we could see that kind of that classic Trantor or Coruscant from Star Wars look, uh, Trantor from the Foundation series, um, come up at some point. And I wouldn't say that, that would look like we'd expect to be there, there though. I think you would probably see uh, lots of very tall skyscrapers that had a lot more floor space around them in terms of empty space. It kind of just depends on what the setup for that looks like how to building shifts cost, but I think it's decently likely we'll see all colleges pop up in the major cities. Yeah. All right. Marky Kasanova says, Hi, Isaac. Big fan here. I was just wondering if you could explain what dark matter and black holes have in common, if one causes the other, or how that theory works. Um, 
Dark Matter is, again, that's matter that we just don't know what it actually is, and we know that it's probably very weakly interacting, and the big candidate is that they are massive individual particles. And that, again, is not that much of a problem. People tend to forget the, of the basic particles we know of, of the, of the six types of quarks and the three types of electron, muon, and tauon, and the neutrinos that make up our core elemental particles. Um, only the up and down quark are actually, you know, they're the lightest of those two quarks, so is the electron. All the other gauge bosons of the bigger varieties and, and the other size quarks, they are huge and massive and weakly interacting. So there's not much to say that they would not be good candidates, not themselves, but something else like that could exist. Now, the other one that comes up a lot is could they be micro black holes? And the answer is yes, but. And the key on that yes, but is that Hawking's concept of uh, Hawking radiation, the idea that black holes evaporate based on their mass, and e.g. the ones that weigh less evaporate faster, that would have to be wrong. Uh, and the problem is that while we, we have yet to ever detect Hawking radiation, we haven't even detected a black hole when he came up with the idea, and I don't know that we could detect Hawking radiation from a normal black hole, even if we had one right next to us, so to speak, because it's so minimal for natural black holes. Um, we have very good reasons to think that almost has to exist under general relativity. So, but we don't know under quantum gravity, which is another area, and that being the case, we can't say for sure they evaporate, but if they do evaporate, if Hawking's right about that, then uh, we couldn't have primordial black holes that will make up dark matter because they wouldn't be very massive. The ones that would still be around should have been evaporating slowly with time to give off a certain amount of radiation. And uh, as a result of that, we should see the expiration of them if they had radiation from that. But it's just basically, it's possible they are black holes, but we'd have to have something a little bit not right about our understanding, and they wouldn't be ones formed by supernova of stars. <coughs> Question from Art and Harsey. Hello from Somalia. As Hello. time progresses and the human sphere expands, what forms do you think day-to-day -day entertainment could take? Is becoming overly hedonistic a potential threat? Um, I think every civilization has to deal a little bit with the idea of, of getting hedonistic um, in various different ways. And I'm not going to say that's ever not a threat. I would say typically, though, so much of what we think of as hedonism has to do with things that make somebody kind of unproductive or disfavored by society, that uh, generally speaking, the people who kind of naturally select out of that to make up the next generation in terms of who's in charge and who's, you know, got the influence, wealth, respect, or, you know, who's raised a large family to, you know, go out there and make up that next generation. Those folks usually do not give over to hedonism as much because so much of what that is, the whole idea of hedonism is that you're withdrawn into yourself and away from society in a productive fashion. Well, when you're translating it that way, uh, if you're not productive uh, in the way society considers productive, then you're not going to be that influential on the next generation of things, and whereas those who are would be. So I think that that is part of, part of what makes up a kind of a protective shell against too much hedonism. Um, of course, a lot of folks don't think that's actually bad in the first place. So that you know, kind of that should be the goal: is what is the purpose of life? And if it is just to be happy, well, then you know, what do we mean by being happy? Is it happy if I just stick a wire in your brain that makes you happy? You know, because that's probably in our technological zone inside the next few decades, even to be honest. Um, and the old neurohacking, as it's called, um, and those are the kind of problems that get into that philosophical zone where I don't know that we'd have a good answer to that as this channel. That's more see the philosophy or theology that, to be honest, has been discussing these topics for uh, you know, a couple millennia at least now, and have, I would say, not come up with a definitive answer, but have come up with a lot of very good in-depth answers. Uh, even though the technology related to it is only decades old, many of the actual core problems philosophically have been 
discussed about those things for centuries and centuries. Um, I don't think that hedonism is going to get us, as to in the future anyway, to what that form of entertainment would take. Virtual reality uh, is finally starting to really hit the scene, but at the same time, I don't know that's necessarily where that's that's going to be the all-encompassing entertainment that we we often thought of in like the eighties and nineties when cyberpunk shot was just hitting the stage. Um, I would say it would be a large mix. More variety would be the biggest thing. More types of entertainment. Uh, let's do one more question that hit the break. Yeah, I was just going to say we've got uh, a yes-no question right before oh, okay. the break here from Kenyon Moon. If JWST spots a fleet of worlds slowly but surely accelerating out of the galactic plane, do we send a contact message, yes or no? Accelerating out of the galactic plane? That's what it says. Mm. So if the James Webb Space Telescope detects a bunch of Chicago thrusters or similar pushing some stars out of the galaxy, I'd say, yeah, absolutely. You might as well send it to them. Um, I mean, if you, if you can detect them, they can detect you, just working on that assumption. Uh, and they're more advanced than you technologically, then they probably can see us. Yes, they'd be a vital target, obviously, but they have all that energy to do that with. And since they probably seen you anyway, yeah, you know, it, definitely say hello. It's not. I, I, I really have difficulty imagining there's some kind of galactic custom that says you're not allowed to invade people unless they say hello to you first. Because that's kind of like saying, well, if someone knocks on your door, you're allowed to murder them, or they wait you out your window. But otherwise, no. I don't think that'd be how that would work out. So. <laughs> Um, on the other hand, it wouldn't be that weird to say that there was a bit of a custom says, if people haven't tried to contact you, leave them be. Um, I don't think that's very likely either, but I think it's a lot more likely than the let's go kill them concept or well, we didn't see a concept. So if we saw something like that, I'd say absolutely send the message to say hello. All right, on, on, oh, let's go ahead and head to a break. We'll see you in about four minutes. So we're halfway through today's show. We'll be taking a break for a few minutes, and it's a great time to get more questions into our moderators for part two. While we're on break, a question that comes up sometimes from folks is how episodes get suggested, picked, written, and then aired. And the short answer is that does vary a lot when it comes to topic selection. Sometimes we do pause of episode topics, and sometimes one of our volunteers who helps edit scripts suggests something, and sometimes someone just tosses it out in a live stream or similar, and I like the idea and roll with it. Most commonly, though not in the majority, some topics come to mind while reading or thumb twiddling or writing other episodes or doing their video sections before airing. Indeed, the last is how we get a ton of them as well as the extended editions I do on Nebula. Once an idea gets picked as an episode, sometimes it gets stuck on the back burner for a time, and other times I turn right around and start typing. Some episodes need research, others are ideas that have been well developed and need nothing but typed out. Occasionally one of the volunteers will present a draft or outline for a topic too, but usually that's where the episode moves into draft mode. Once I get a draft ready, I put it up on our Google Drive, and depending on time and interest, various folks will help edit it, both conceptually and for a lot of endless typos and bad grammar I'm prone to, and these are the folks who are in the editor heading in the episode credit rolls, and we are always looking for volunteers to help with that. Usually about a week later, I'll finish out the draft and record it, minus the sponsor section and schedule and announcements, because at this point it's typically two months before it airs or more. Episode topics are rarely picked less than three months before they air, and exceptions tend to be cases like collaborations with other channels. So the episode sits for a couple months while others get written and recorded, and typically two weeks out I start working on the video, and also typically I put the video together as a segment, then put on our sponsor and announcement and credits as separate bits. Sometimes the episode and sponsor are lined up with the topic in mind, but that varies. For instance, I often work on a video and have revisit the topic months later from when I wrote it. Now some new episode comes to mind as I do that. 
This is often why episodes in our various series are 3 or 4 months apart, because I'll decide that a new thought that just came to mind is a potential episode and write it, continuing the series. Other times I don't think there's quite enough for an entire episode and set it aside, but a lot of times lately I've ended up doing those as our extended editions, and I tend to like to line those up with episodes curiosity stream sponsors, same as I usually try to shift episodes mentioning various books to episodes audible sponsors, or ones that are more math heavy to be a brilliant sponsored episode and so on. Anyway, usually 7-10 to ten days out I have a draft video off to our production crew to review for errors or glitches, and off to the sponsor for approval of their spot, and maybe one time in 4 I have to fix some particularly egregious typo in the episode, or rendering glitch, or a sponsor wants a correction, like I forgot to use their new logo or they'd appreciate if I had a sentence or rephrased one. Maybe once a year or twice a year a video needs a bigger fix and sometimes stuff slips through, like a misspelled title for an episode, which has happened twice that I recall. After that, typically a day or two before it airs, Jacob, our longest running volunteer on the show, will do the cover out. Occasionally for bonus episodes I do the cover, but at least 95% of the covers are his, and have been since we started doing weekly episodes back in spring of 2016. Jacob is amazing and I am incredibly grateful to him for his just years and years of help. I usually post the sponsor-free version and sometimes extended versions of the episodes to Nebula as soon as that cover art arrives. This is more or less the process, I usually set up all the postings on Wednesday night and go hit the enter button and release buttons to YouTube and all of other platforms about 9 in the morning, and then sit around with my coffee making sure nothing went wrong and responding to some comments on the episode from you guys. That is pretty much the process for those who are curious, it's a little different for our bonus episodes and collabs, but I tend to be a bit of a creature of habit otherwise. Every creator does it differently though, so if you are one or think you're becoming one, don't assume my routine is the best one for you, it just works well for me. Alright, with all that said, let's get back to your questions. Alright, then we're back. Well, we're going to kick right off with a question from Raven609. Thank you, Raven, for your super chat. And he says, could other planets have rainbows? Oh yeah, absolutely. The big thing that causes rainbows to exist in our atmosphere is basically just that, that large amounts of moisture in the air that cause a prism effect of a large but diffuse prism. It doesn't have to be caused by moisture either. It's not water that's doing that. That's the effect here. It's just a difference in the composition of the air compared to where you're standing or what's normal. So... Any large weather change, any kind of change of atmosphere, pressure, moisture, or some other gas even on a plant that's mostly like helium and hydrogen might have something like that too. So rainbows should be pretty much everywhere you know, that has an atmosphere. Halo Peter, for humankind development, what do you think? What research that we should focus on here on Earth right now? So could you say that one more time? For humankind development, what research should we focus on here on Earth right now? Um... For the betterment of humanity in general, I, I always take the attitude that we can walk and chew bubblegum at the same time. You know, it's it's like you know, what energy to invest into all of them. You know, I even say, you know, keep keep trying to improve uh, coal and oil technologies because the better you get with them, the better you can be efficient with them. Uh, what ones help us out? Either it helps with education, either it helps us with uh, less stress in our lives. You know, that thanks to like your psychology, your sociology, those help too. Just the whole thing, you know. There's there's a lot of knowledge out there. We should not be uh, avoiding research on any one of those. Again, we can walk and chew bubblegum at the same time. Sounds more like walk, chew bubblegum, snap your fingers, and click your heels. Oh yeah, and juggle some too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Harrison Slocum says, Would life on a rogue planet evolve more quickly than life on a planet that is gravitationally bound to a star due to general relativistic gravitational time dilution? Uh, no. Uh, first, uh, there, there was virtually no difference in the gravity on a rogue planet compared to, you know, inside a solar system. Um, very loosely, and I say this is a very loose rule of thumb, if you plug in the orbital velocity or the velocity of any given object, you know, to escape from another body gravitationally into your normal special relativity equation, that will tell you about the time dilations from that, um, the escape velocity from wherever you're at. And you'll find that ours at like 50 kilometers per second from the solar system, whatever it is, something in that zone is nowhere near enough to really be significant in a relativistic effect. And the other thing, of course, is you know, all things being exactly equal, yes, the further you are from the galactic core, if you're in intergalactic void, if you're in deep in a star space far from a star, yes, time runs just a little bit faster. But we're talking billions of, 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 of a difference. And uh, then you say, well, what's actually making life on that planet viable? And it's got very little energy, so very little biodiversity, very little overall biomass, very thin um, civilizations in terms of being able to source themselves. So time is running a bit faster there, but there's so little energy that it does, you know, that that one is so tiny compared to the other. It's just uh, really not a factor. But yes, time does technically run just a little bit faster in the voids. All right. Antonio Sanford, have you <clears throat> looked at spin launch? And what are your thoughts on a non-rocket launch system? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm actually not positive if I'm thinking of the spin launch thing that, that is the actual spin launch, but... I'm guessing there that's the idea of a of a non-linear accelerator, like a circular accelerator, that would spin you up and kind of, um, uh, oh my word, what's that called? A helicopter? The th no, the thing that David killed Goliath with, what was that called? Slingshot. Sling yeah, slingshot you out. Uh, so I was thinking yeah. boomerang, but yes, slingshot. No, <laughs> you don't want any space launch system that's based on boomerang technology. <laughs> Once you send it out, you do not want it coming back home until it's had a chance to slow down. <laughs> Uh, but a slingshot, um, you know, that, that approach which just spins around very fast and tossing it, that is viable, but mostly for cargo, right? It has, because it all has to do with the acceleration rate, and that's your turning radius thing. A 1G circular acceleration, it would be the same as orbiting Earth right right here at the atmospheric level. Um, that's I think that's kind of like machine, those yeah. little tubes that my... Uh, yes, nieces exactly and nephews got for Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> and you put a little thing in it, you spin it around, and they just go flying yeah. all over the place. And that, that is a classic uh, system. Like if you take a hose with a pebble in it and swing around. Oh, dear. Um, that's not a bad way to throw cargo out there. It'll be a little bit different in that case how you're setting up, but it's not good for people launches. <laughs> Sounds painful. Whiplash, well, here I come. You. It would probably pancake you. My, my, my chiropractor would like that. Whiplash, here I come. <laughs> Nine out of ten chiropractors agree. Slingshot technology is great for orbital launch and transfer. <laughs> but not for people. All right, this is new. Hi, Isaac and Sarah. What is the best way for starlifting metals from non-convective stars? Thanks. Oh, um, that's a tricky one. Okay, so the idea of starlifting is that most stars have a lot of FAO elements in them, and because they're convective, much like a soup, those heavier elements, have, they don't settle into the core. They get made more in the core, but the ones that are pre-existing there, you know, they don't sink down. It just constantly is bubbly and frothing. Some stars are more convective than others. Some are basically not convective. Um, and in that case, you would expect the heavier materials to start selling down towards the bottom. How would you get those out of there? Um, and I would say in a case like that, the approach I would take would be to... Um, 
mirror around that sun, put a big, big shell of reflective materials around it, like, uh, not to say a hollow shell either, you could do a statite or lagite type setup on that with mirrors all around it, just kind of globing it though, and bouncing that light back down on the star in general. This will heat that star up, and that should cause it to get more convective if it wasn't convective. Uh, if it was one of the star types, that's, there's a number of ranges that varies at. Um, so you should be able to bounce it to a more convective state. That's still going to require a lot of patience, though. You might be looking at millions of years' wait to get the point that was practical. And if that doesn't work, your other good bet is just to use that star lifting technology to start pulling matter off in large quantity and then using something like fusion or a black hole generator to run power to keep stripping the thing down. And that will get you those metals, too. All right, we have a super chat from Knife Tex. Have you ever read Deep Time by Gregory Binford? Um, surprisingly, no. Um, okay. I'm a big Benford fan. Um, this is probably, though, the only series I can think of right now of his that I've actually read in detail would be the Galactic Core, uh, well, Black Galactic Central Saga, which is very good. And, of course, uh, he was one of the three authors, the three Bs, that uh, did the second Foundation trilogy after Isaac Asimov's death, uh, Gregory Bayer, Greg Benford, and, um, and David Brin. And uh, if you have not read either of those three authors, you're missing out on a lot, go read that, but I have not actually read that particular book myself, and I probably should be adding that to the list. He's also got a suggestion that a video with your take on deep time messages would be quite interesting. I will have to add that to the list of things to read, though. Okay, I'll add it to the list. Deep right. Time By message. Gregory Benford. All right. Asmodeus. You don't need to answer this, but if you were to get another round of laryngitis, would using text-to-speech be tempting just to keep your schedule? Um, I think if I, if, if I, well, first, I record all of our episodes. This is the only time I'm really live was when I do this or interviews. I record all of our episodes within a week or two of me actually drafting them. Um, and since I draft them about two to three months out, that's part of why I do that is in case I lose my voice. Um, and, uh, you know, the... the Live streams, I know, are never as good of voice as the, obviously, the narrated scripted ones, but uh, I think I would just probably have canceled if it had been much worse than it was today and rescheduled one other time. Um, and uh, if I had lost my voice for a few, well, like, more than a month in a row, I would probably, you <laughs> know, ask what about better spoken at, but for like a month, if I lost it as a good speaking quality voice, um, it was down for why I probably would ask... Well, I'd probably stop by asking John Michael Goodyear if he felt like narrating temporarily, but one of the crew, maybe Jerry Gorn, he's got a good voice on him. Then we'd find some people to temporarily guest narrate the episodes until my voice got back. And if it wasn't recovering, then yeah, I might consider a a a, a, a text-to-voice system, but uh, probably not. They're a little choppy. I think we just go with a... Well, we'd probably just go with an actual narrator at that point of like a pro. Albert Jackinson, hey Isaac, will space telescope ca capabilities ever have an improvement limit? <laughs> and if not, or if the limit is far beyond what we have now, what applications would these hypothetical space telescopes have? Um, you know, our episode Mega Telescopes looks at the kind of the big extent of how far you could go with that. And in the extreme sense, you could actually build something that was galaxy sized. I, I don't know why you would ever do that, but you could. Um, your real limitation is going to be. What is the maximum resolution we ever need to see? And what's the maximum we can actually see? And 
Right now, that maximum resolution is what, like 90, well, 46 billion light years away from a factor standpoint. And um, that is kind of where you're going to get your limit of saying, how big is there any reason to ever actually build these things? And my guess would be that that would still be you build ones that were planet sized in terms of diameter. Probably way less than an asteroid, but planet sized and diameter. See the Mega Telescopes episode. Caleb Duran, I believe that you've mentioned that enough stars in one area can create uh, an event horizon without a singularity. If even light couldn't escape, how could matter avoid collapse? Um, Okay, so, well, let's see how we go about this. Usually when I'm talking about that, I'm not actually talking about trying to crunch things into a singularity, or that that's not really the goal of like a Borch planet or... Um, a red Dyson what was it called, a globular Dyson swarm or something like that was what me and Steve Bowers had nicknamed the thing <coughs> excuse me uh, usually the goal there was to get as close as you could to an event horizon but not actually get over it um, you do not have to have a black hole with a singularity to have an event horizon as an example if I'm accelerating away from something that's not quite a black hole like a neutron star uh, there would get to be a point where the gravity of that neutron star plus my own acceleration did not allow light from that thing to ever actually reach me, and it would disappear to me, right? Um, and that's what appealed to me, you have an event horizon right there. Um, same as you're falling towards a black hole, you'll never reach the event horizon. If you're moving towards it very quickly, the black hole's event horizon will seem to contract in size, um, because the escape velocity between you and that light at the moment has changed. Um, how that said, right, there's nothing about singularity that we'd assume is necessary to have a black hole. But once you start crunching stuff together, you will get frame dragging, and that will eventually cause stuff to decay in its orbit and fall in. Usually when we talk about trying to escape into a event horizon, we're assuming some active method of trying to prevent that that we don't have yet. But uh, you're not dead from crossing an event horizon. Time doesn't stop the end of an event horizon. It just means that an event horizon does not fix things in space either. They are always between one object and another based on their speeds. So it's not like a wall. Uh, and so you could be in an event horizon relative to other people and not be in one relative to the thing that's beneath you. But if I have two black holes like this, they will eventually merge. But when they get close enough that their event horizons touch, even though they have singularities that aren't touching, they will merge into one big one instead, the event horizons. That's how that works out. The event horizon is not really part of the black hole. It's just the horizon over which events cannot be seen. And when the black hole towards a singularity or individual mass, that's not the same concept. So see our black hole series for more discussion of that topic. We have a few more questions on black holes, but before we get there, Pastel Assassin says, is it possible to detect vacuum decay in a region of the universe through telescopes, like, say, through gravitational lensing before it's arrived on Earth? No. Vacuum decay, when we're talking about that, that, that idea of the universe kind of flattening out to a next lowest state than what we thought of as the vacuum, that would be moving at the speed of light. Gravity moves at the speed of light. That moves at the speed of light. The light from it would move at the speed of light. Basically, every one of those effects would be moving at the same speed. Uh, and so you shouldn't have any real forewarning of that. Um, I don't know for certain that it might, like, kind of like with neutrinos, they're moving just a little bit less than the speed of light. There might be some leading edge to that that you get to see in advance, which if it was very 99.9% of the speed of light and uh, that it traveled out with that, and you're a billion light years away, it would still give you a million years of forewarning. Um, but I would say for the most part, assume you wouldn't have any forewarning of that, and gravitational energy itself shouldn't help you with that. From Halo Pitter, how do you imagine the order of colonizing solar systems will look like? Leo, Moon, Asteroid Belt, Mars, Ceres, <coughs> Jovian Moons? 
uh, in terms of what order we develop. Yes. Uh, low Earth orbit would always be the first place we really develop for us. Department of Redundancy Department. Uh, so <laughs> the the moon would be the other one that you'd be advancing even for like middle and uh, high orbit or geostationary. There's certain places you're going to develop very heavily like our geostationary ring should be one of the first things that really gets developed besides low Earth orbit because it's of special note but dense and useful. The moon will be a place we develop very heavily. The Lagrange points, four and five, especially for the Earth moon and the Earth sun system should be heavily developed, much as we got James Webb Telescope going to Lagrange 2 right now, because that's a special value. After that, it just comes down to what is actually useful, or what do we really want to do. There is no real advantage going to Mars other than to improve our technology and get some sort of other planet colonized. Um, however, the asteroids might be useful because of mineral wealth, for instance. Um, if that turns out to be true, then they'd be great, and they'd be very rapidly developed. Kind of the same thing going on for the Jovian moons. If you decide you need a lot of water and you don't want to go through an atmosphere to get it, like ours, those are good sources. So the development is very technology-based and it's not going to really fold out, but it won't really be all that much distance-based. Right? We could easily see Kuiper, um, Kuiper Belt developments before we were doing anything on Venus, for instance, even though Venus might be the easiest place to tail for them. All right. Sadistic Seraph says, why isn't anyone working on a launch system like the Launch Loop or Skyhook? It seems like space billionaires should be all over that instead of limiting themselves to rockets. Um, I would say the biggest thing holding back things like the Launch Loop itself is, one, that's that's a huge capital investment just to do your basic experimentation on And two, and this is a lo the Lostrum Launch Loop, right? A big point Keith Lostrum himself made is to, on that, actually, when he... He liked our episode on it, but wanted to remind me that we didn't have very good magnetic shields at the time. And it was a great honor to hear from that, and I'm very glad he liked the episode. But uh, his own opinion is that the biggest hordak on the Lostrum loop was that our best magnetic insulator right now is mu metal. So you get cheap, uh, cheap superconductors. Um, we had to worry about the effect of you know not being able to put a lot of magnetic shielding around stuff. Right now, our biggest way to avoid problems with magnets is uh, in terms of using long ones is just distance. You don't really get too close to them. But magnetic shielding is probably something we need to really improve before we can really do something like a Lostrum loop uh, without a lot of extra effort. The technology works, but it'd be a little bit more complicated. Uh, as to skyhooks, right, um, that's can you mass produce graphene yet? And the answer is no, we cannot mass produce graphene yet. It's nice long tethers. When we can, that becomes more viable for right now. The, the skyhook is there, it's doable. But, and I would say this, probably the worst thing that's hurt a lot of these alternative launch systems is actually SpaceX, the reusable rocket, and our successes there. Sometimes improvements to one technology can actually hurt development of other technologies because they are no longer competitive because of those other improvements. So, pros and cons. They are were, they were not gone as concepts. They're probably on hold for a little while because we've got these new advances with reusable rockets. So we had a few more questions around black holes and then uh, just a few others that I'm hoping we can get to before we run out of time. Floor lightning round. What? Uh, lightning round then. Go ahead. Yes, lightning round on black holes. Floor Horbeck, is there a size or a mass limit to black holes before they can turn into Planck stars? Would it need to collapse like normal stars before it can turn into a Planck star? Um, well, the idea of you know, a Planck star is the Planck star is the in-between state between a neutron or quark star and a black hole itself. Um, there's no real limitation on that. I'd say probably about three, three solar masses to do it naturally, though. Uh, you'd have to check some of the current modeling, but there's a lot of, 
a lot of assumptions there about quantum gravity and how gravity works on that scale that we don't know yet. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then from Micah Walton, is it possible to have a black hole without a singularity, like a bunch of stars orbiting in a small yeah, area? absolutely, exactly like we were talking before. That's, that's the idea of kind of curving, for instance. Uh, a black hole just has to do with an area where the escape velocity from it to another area is higher than the speed of light, and that doesn't require that all be clumped together in one spot. Okay. Um, we have a super chat from Thumb Ugly. <laughs> have you ever seen space above and beyond? There yes. is a neat Indo-Exo atmospheric fighter called SA-43 Hammerhead. If you've seen it, what do y'all think? Space Above and Beyond was, I want to say late 90s, was a good a good TV show. There was only one season, maybe two. Very interesting show. I'd, I'd, I'd recommend finding on Netflix where it's got. It's uh, got some interesting takes on aliens and, and uh, artificial intelligence as well, as well as uh, people being born and raised in tanks. Um, Next. (laughs) (laughs) Vincent Walden Rivera. I'm 22 as of 2021. Will radical life extension happen in my lifetime? And if so, when can we expect it? I sure hope so. Uh, People always ask me what technology I most want to see invented in my lifetime. I would say life extension technology. Um, I think that I'd say that there's a better than 50-50 chance of being discovered before the end of the century in the way that we get takeoff speed that allows effective biological immortality. Mm Mm-hmm. Rated. Thank you for your super chat. He says, Happy holidays, everyone. I'm listening while cooking. Once food can be sustainably grown in a low-G environment, lunar, Martian, etc., what might meal preparation look like? Mm, I, there's a, a nice little astronomy uh, space station uh, episode from uh, Chris Hadfield on cooking up the space station that I would recommend everyone go watch at some point in time, just cooking on the space station. Um, Cooking in low gravity it would be an interesting challenge, uh, especially because, again, fire is like a bit of a ball there, as opposed to like a flame going upward. But I think meal prep there would probably involve a centrifuge quite often. So other uses for blender, as a whole. <laughs> I don't want all my food blended, so they better work on those technologies. <laughs> Bam Unlimited. Good afternoon, Isaac. What do you think will be the biggest economic driver for space travel within the next few decades? For space travel, um, there was gold in them there, asteroids. Uh, I would actually bet probably either the mining industrial resources aspect of the moon or the asteroids or power satellites. Those two are the two big ones to me. The one other exception would be anything that allows metallurgy or chemistry at a gross scale using microgravity. That's beneficial. So, like, if someone finds out the new equivalent of the silicon semiconductor can be made in zero gravity, that should push right there. And, DeWall, thank you also for your super chat. Any validity to concept dark matter being proof that there are alternate universes? Because the concept of gravitational particle moves through dimensions, and we are not detecting stellar bodies in other universes. If not, why? I I know this is very popular to discuss the scenario that gravity, uh, some of the gravity theories that have to do with like gravity being much, much weaker because it goes through all the various other multiverse and things like that, but... I, I think that in all those cases, we, we really need to put that on hold till we actually have at least an experiment that could test for falsifiability on these things. I love the mathematical models, but I tend to like to keep them, keep them looted inside the field on that because they get the folks' head as though they're almost already proven, and uh, they're really not stretch. And I don't think that... I, I think we've gotten a little bit too speculative about what gravity does at the multiverse level. Jaeger says, what's your opinion on the theory that dark energy is negative energy that came about from the Big Bang to keep the universe at a net zero? Yeah, that's possible. Uh, The problem with dark energy is that we we only know it by the fact that it caused the universe to expand. Um, 
And if it was causing that because of keeping the universe at a, a zero sum, as it were, um, that would certainly allow it, except the problem with dark energy is that we call it that because it's the energy of, sp of new space appearing. And that's a positive amount of energy. So you have to find out where that negative uh, counter energy was coming from. And uh, I don't see that necessarily on the radar uh, as something we'd be able to locate anytime soon if that was the case. So it's not the one I go for, but it's going to be ruled out. Paul Zykes, thank you so much for your super chat. He said, somebody mentioned chemical rockets could get to Mars without the need of spin gravity being required. What do you think? Um, chemical rockets can definitely get us to Mars without needing spin gravity. The question is whether or not we'd want to do that. Um, you know, like a fission rocket or a fusion rocket eventually allow you to go to some place where the, the amount of time you spend is not going to hurt you for low gravity. But we already have a chemical rocket born capability to get some models in less than a year if we want to. And we had people on the space station that long too. Um, so it's not like we can't get people to live there. And there was no sign like, our oh, astronauts are up there for a year or any risk of actually dying from low gravity. But they're getting health complications. Um, but I don't know why you wouldn't just spin the rocket anyway. Even just a very minor amount, you, you probably would always build any interplanetary ship with spin capability. Um, even ones that have something like an Epstein driver you just can non-stop burn, you still wouldn't waste that fuel, so you'd probably still have a, a spin section. So I don't think we'd ever seen an interplanetary craft that didn't try to incorporate some spin gravity into it, unless okay. we had artificial gravity like we see in sci-fi. Last question for the day from Videographer Experience. Isaac, do you have any specific hopes for new discoveries to be made soon by the JWST. So we're going to end on the same note we began. Uh, James Webb Space Telescope. Um, it, well, seeing that launch, I, it's weird. The first thing I thought is maybe Winds of Winter by George R. R. Martin will finally come out. Um, but we we will see. I, I, I am, I'm really looking forward to it, but I, I'm just going to keep my expectations there until we actually get that data in. And I'd say, ask me again in another year or so. But you already know the answer by then anyway. So... And that's it for 2021, except we still have the other episode coming up uh, on December 30th, um, challenges for the next 100 years. And uh, that will finish up for the day and for the year. So thank you all for joining us. If I missed your question, especially with Super Chat, please get down into the comments section, and I'll try to get back to it next day or so to, to get you answered on that if we can. And using text-to-text -text technology. Using text-to-text -text technology, yes. <laughs> In the meantime, I am going to grab me some hot tea and some soup and uh, get my voice back and 